When I lived in Jordan several years back, there was a popular restaurant I'd take visitors to. It had all the classics of Jordanian cuisine, and it was downtown. Easy enough to find. So I thought when I'd give my friends instructions on how to find the place, I would tell them to tell the cab driver that it was the restaurant under the Muslim Brotherhood's headquarters downtown. Since their inception in the 1920s in Egypt, at the hand of Hassan al-Banna, the Brotherhood has become a household name across the Arabic-speaking world. There's a local branch in most Arab countries, and in many Muslim countries at that, though the degree of political participation varies from country to country. Thus, the acceptance of the Brotherhood by local governments also varies from setting to setting. In Jordan, clearly, the Muslim Brotherhood could exist in plain sight. In other places, Brotherhood members are persecuted. The Arab Spring made it a household name globally, particularly due to the role of the Egyptian Brotherhood in Egypt's spring. However, to understand how this recent chapter in the Brotherhood's history unfolds, we need to look at the period that perhaps contributed most directly to the Brotherhood's prominence in Egypt. In addition, there is also the need to look at Salafism, the Brotherhood's strange twin, or maybe cousin is a better word which has grown alongside it and often in reaction to it. For that, we turn to Aaron Roxinger. Aaron Roxinger is a social and intellectual historian of the modern Middle East and Islam. He received his BA from the University of Pennsylvania, his MPhil from St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and his PhD from Princeton's Department of Near Eastern Studies. Following a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House, he joined Cornell's Department of Near Eastern Studies as a visiting assistant professor. In the fall of 2019, he will begin a tenure-track position in Middle Eastern history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the author of many articles and a book, Practicing Islam in Egypt, Print Media and Islamic Revival, from Cambridge University Press 2019. My name is Ene Mansour, or Nadira, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. What I find so interesting about this is that, and I don't want to accuse you of presentism because I think that you approach, I mean, the book is a work of history and it, I want to congratulate on it. It reads so well. I, I don't think I've read an academic book that felt like a novel, <laughs> quite like your book. And you layer in the historical fact and the important historical detail that one would need in order to understand Egypt pre the 1970s and pre-Islamic revival. Um, and the actual sort of events of the revival itself. But it's very difficult also to, I think, study a lot of these movements without, without sort of the knowledge that in your contemporary world, these parties are evolving. I mean, during the course of writing your dissertation, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was outlawed in Egypt, the country of its origin. So I have to ask, because I'm assuming that you did the dissertation research during the Arab Spring, around the Arab Spring period, how did the Arab Spring itself bear upon your work? So, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment that it reads um, like something that is that, that, that keeps your attention. Uh, what I meant to say was that it actually read like a very poor piece of academic writing. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so it appeared initially that the Arab Spring was going to be a boon because when I went to Egypt for field work in the spring of 2013 the Brotherhood was flying high and it was very easy to get interviews with members of the Brotherhood uh, because everyone felt so good about the situation this was really a triumphalist moment um, I, and I was able to interview a bunch of folks who'd been active in the relevant Islamist magazines from the 70s um, now, with Morsi's toppling in 2013, the situation changes and it becomes much more difficult to do research on Brotherhood of Salafis in Egypt that I had hoped as part of this dissertation. 
to do oral history as well. And that simply wasn't possible. Um, but it ultimately wasn't an issue because what I did instead was really focus on the 70s at first. And then as I expanded the, the dissertation to a book, drawn sources from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s to tell a story of the rise of an Islamic revival in Egypt. Uh, now, how this relates to the Arab Spring is in some ways counterintuitive because we, li we like to think of the Arab Spring as really being a battle between the Brotherhood and those who are diametrically opposed to them, specifically the regime of Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. What's so striking about the story, though, is that we don't have a dichotomy of religious versus secular here. And one of the ways of tracking this is simply looking at people's daily practices. Now, one of those practices is women failing. It's a very visible practice. It's, not, it's, of course, not the only religious practice, but it's a particularly visible one. Another is men and women alike, but particularly men praying uh, on a daily basis. And what's striking here is that in the last 40 years, we, we have a shift from the hijab or niqab being a minority practice to being very much a social norm. That today, the decision to take off the hijab or take off the niqab is much more of a statement socially than the decision to put one on. Similarly, the decision to abstain from prayer, particularly Friday prayer, is, marks you in ways that are much more significant than the decision to participate. Now, how this relates to the binaries of religious and secular that many people understand Egypt through today is that you look at the rulers in question, you look at Sadat to Sisi, and you see men who pray. Mubarak was a little bit less pious, but both Sadat and then Morsi and then Sisi had you know, what is known as a zabiba or a prayer bump on their forehead, you know, as a callus on one's forehead that is said to come from in daily piety when one bows one head, one's head and prostrates in prayer. Abdel Nasser didn't have a Zabiba. I haven't, historically speaking, been able to find much reference to Zabibas prior to the 1970s. Similarly speaking, we have the fact that Mubarak's wife didn't fail, Jihan Sadat, Sadat's wife, didn't fail. But Sisi and Borsi's wife both fail. So in, in some sense, what's so striking here is that both Sisi and Morsi are very much products of the Islamic revival, that the decision here isn't a question of whether to be religious or not. It's about how that particular religiosity relates to politics, what role it has to Egypt, relation it has to Egyptian nationalism, what connection it has to a longer history of Islamic movements, or whether it sees the center of religious life as a set of state institutions that themselves have a history going back to the late, late 19th, early 20th century of seeking to control religious thought and practice in Egypt and beyond. You've basically, thank you very much for that, because you've basically laid out the structure of the book. You do focus on particular practices. I mean, you left out a couple of things. We're going to go back to them, particularly with regards to the vocabulary of the Arab Spring. But you gave us a sense of sort of how different practices, um, the visible aspects of piety shape the book. And in particular, you also uh, 
gave, I mean, it's obvious sort of from the book itself, uh, the title of the book, that this, that many of your sources are print materials, but you also just reference the fact that you use oral history. And I, I don't know, oral history to me is so tricky because you need to ask questions in a way that you're not leading on the individuals that you're interviewing. And I have to say, the oral history isn't just like, I mean, you didn't just do oral history for show. It's in the footnotes. I mean, you go through the footnotes as you go along and you realize that, no, a lot of the evidence that you used um, was compiled from oral histories and not simply from the print publications you were using. So how did you phrase questions when you approached your sources and how did you track down those sources? I mean, breaking into the Muslim Brotherhood's network isn't easy. I'll, I'll start with how I got talking to Muslim Brothers, uh, which was actually very much a, a case of cold calling. I walked into the, I first of all, I tracked down publishing Islamic publishing houses around Cairo. I basically spent a bunch of time Googling, trying to figure out where the different publishing houses were. And then I just walked in to both Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi publishing houses, explained my project, explained what, explained in very honest terms what this project was about, which was to tell a story of Egypt's Islamic revival that took seriously the role of these different factions. Now, in the case of Muslim Brotherhood and Salafis, I didn't say, I also think the role of state institutions is important. I said, I want to tell the story of your contributions, which is absolutely true. Um, And so I I essentially just went in and I said, I really want to talk to people who are involved in this. Do you know anyone who was? Uh, And now in the specific case, of the Brotherhood's print shop or publisher, Dar al-Tazio al-Nasha al-Islamiya, I walked in and I was fortunate enough to chat with the managing editor of the print shop who and the, the publishing house, who was extremely accommodating. He said, here, this is what we have, but let me put you in touch with a man named Badr Muhammad Badr, who was actually an editor of the magaz- of Adawa magazine, the Brotherhood's magazine, during the 1976 to 81 period. And so I really, I just walked in and I said, these are my questions. I'm simply trying to understand this period. I'm trying to tell a full history that really takes seriously the contributions of these different factions. Um, and people were very welcoming, uh, to the point where actually when uh, Abdus Salam Bashandi, who was the head of the Brotherhood's um, print publishing office um, in Cairo, at the point that he sent me to another one of their branches, I ended up getting the member's discount at this other branch. Um, he, he called ahead to let them know that I should be receiving the member's discount, which is something in the area of 40%. And I certainly never thought I was going to be getting the member's discount at the Brotherhood's bookstore. Uh, but they were incredibly accommodating, very open to the project, very excited to know that I was interested in Adawa magazine in, and in the 70s. And also they took the view that politics was often negotiated through culture, through magazines, that I wasn't speaking in the language of politics, but I simply said there are a lot of studies of this period that don't take seriously the role of magazines in social and intellectual change of 
that the, the social and intellectual changes that helped to constitute the Islamic revival. And I want to tell the role of those magazines and the writers and readers within them. Uh, now, in terms of methodology, I had two basic goals. One was I needed to actually establish a set of set, simple empirical questions. One was how the magazines were funded. And here I, I worried less about phrasing questions because, quite frankly, it was really a straightforward, how is this funded? Where did the funding come from? Uh, and the various people I interviewed were actually very helpful in this respect. What I would have loved to do more of was to ask people what their recollections were of that period. I couldn't do that for reasons both of Morsi's toppling, as well simply because recollections were often problematic, that the Brotherhood remembered itself as being the driving force of the revival. The Salafis reminded themselves, remembered themselves as playing a similar role. Members of state religious institutions, whether the Islamic Research Academy or the Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs, which is part of the Egyptian Ministry of Endowments, had similar recollections. Uh, so here, in the absence of access to, in the absence of the ability to do this kind of broad scale oral history, which I think has real value in telling stories, particularly stories that stories of groups that haven't left much of a print residue. I, I then turned actually to online brotherhood sites, spe- specifically to a website called Ikhwentub, which posted just everything and anything uh, of these public televised interviews with members of the brotherhood, some private interviews with members of the brotherhood from the seventies of leaders from the seventies. Um, and I, and I essentially listened and tried to get a sense of how these recollections of interviews that had already been done but haven't been published, and at this point many of them even aren't even available on Ikhwentub, to get a sense of how the various student leaders and activists of the 1970s perceived the period in which they were living. So this is essentially secondary oral history. Uh, but I, you know, I wish I had been able to do more oral history. I think my question ultimately as I tried to engage with people, was to ask what changed in the 70s and to leave it open in that sense and then to compare what they told me with what I had print record of having happened from that period to essentially try to use these sources to illuminate each other. So Aaron's work is important, not just because it will contribute to our knowledge about Egypt, but because he's so precise about how he describes Salafis in the Brotherhood. That's what he's about to do for us. He's about to break down the differences between Salafis and the Muslim Brotherhood and why and how they think the way they do. So he ascribes a logic to the way they think. And this is important because it has implications beyond Egypt. In non-Muslim countries, especially where Islamophobia runs rampant, this counteracts the notion that Islamists and Muslims generally function irrationally, temperamentally. Furthermore, his precision with identifying these strains of thought allows us to see that Muslims are not a monolith. They enjoy intellectual richness and a diversity at that. So an aside, a personal story, if you will. When Aaron and I were both graduate students and he was presenting a paper 
A Muslim religious figure I know commented that Aaron had achieved the lofty goal of writing about Salafism without being Islamophobic or assuming that all Muslims are Salafis. You know, this this tells you something about the state of the field today um, and the level of discourse in particular amongst Americans about Muslims and about Salafism and how they do muddle their terms. My question to you, just because I think post-Arab Spring, people have been muddling the terms Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafi movement. I'm curious how you distinguish between the two, because both are major characters within the book itself. But I think there are many ways in which, and I think that there's great reason, I think that there's quite a lot of cause for them to be inter- them to be confused, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis, or interchanged. Do you think the terms are interchangeable? How do the terms relate to each other? Well, we, so it's a great question. We certainly, historically, in terms of the academic scholarship, have a confusion between the two. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood sometimes are called neo-Salafis. Um, I distinguish them along a few basic axes. The first is that if we think about the Brotherhood, this is an Islamist organization, and what an Islamist organization is, is an organization that seeks to transform state and society using contemporary organizational forms. That this political project of social and political transformation is central. Um, now, the questions that it asks and the mechanisms that it uses are shaped essentially by two key forces of the 20th century. One is the power of non-Islamic and leftist social movements. So here I'm thinking of missionaries in early 20th century Egypt, for example, uh, and also leftists in Egypt um, and elsewhere. And secondly, the power of the state to reorder society. So I think that if we want to understand why Islamists talk so much about an Islamic state, we need to understand that they emerged in the context of an incredibly powerful Nasserist state between 1952 and 1970. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the core premise of Islamism is that moral change can come with a, from a combination of top-down change and proselytization from bottom up. Now, for Salafis, they might look similar on the surface, but the essential concerns differ. Uh, Salafis take as a starting point that questions of politics are secondary. The question for them primarily is how to reshape society through correct knowledge of Islam's foundational sources, specifically the Quran and the authoritative account of the Prophet Muhammad's life known as the Sunnah. Uh, For Salafis, top-down change is essentially meaningless without bottom-up moral transformation. Now, this brings us to the confusion between the two and specifically to the fact that there is a hybrid category of Salafis who are Islamists. Um, sometimes known as Salafi Islamists, sometimes simply glossed as Islamists in ways that essentially efface the distinctive theological and legal commitments of contemporary Salafism. Now, what we don't have here is a case of Salafis simply setting aside the fact that they're deeply committed to particular neo-Hanbali understandings of theology that have a lot to that have a lot in common with the Hanbali school that is dominant in Saudi Arabia, or, and we, it's also, they don't set aside their commitment to deriving all law from the Quran and Sunnah. Uh, What they do set aside when they become Islamists, however, is a particular model of obedience to the ruler, a particular 
quietest approach to politics in which your obligation to a ruler, except in cases in which they engage in flagrant disbelief, is to render private advice. Uh, by contrast, Islamist Salafis engage in parliamentary politics and explicit criticism of the ruler. Uh, but the caveat to all of this is that we, at the end of the day, need to look at their behavior once they engage in politics in order to avoid simply conflating their strategies with those of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, for example, in the case of Egypt, we have the Freedom and Justice Party and the Nur Party, Freedom and Justice being the arm of the Brotherhood um, and Nur Party being, the Nur Party being the leading Salafi party. When were these established? Um, when was the Noor Party established? And this was after the, I, I believe that um, the Noor Party was established post-Arab Spring, at the point when it became clear that there was a possibility of political participation for Salafis. Um, and there was a longer history, obviously, out of which Noor came out, namely the Alexandria-based Salafi call. Um, but as a political party, it was very much a product of the post-Mubarak period. Um, but what's striking about the contrast between the FJP and Noor here is that the FJP wanted power because it wanted to essentially reshape the whole government, reshape society, enact a very broad set of reforms. Noor was much more concerned with a much, na- with a much narrower set of concerns. They were much more similar to a pressure group within the government rather than a group that sought to control the government. They were concerned with preserving their ability to proselytize, with preserving their control of the mosque, and also, of course, with questions such as Islamic law uh, and the way in which the government functioned as a religious state. But at the end of the day, these were fundamentally concerns that had a much longer history that well predated the political party. So what the book does in its first chapter is it looks at the conceptual history of what this term that we've been using throughout this conversation, the Islamic revival is, and you trace the different terms that are associated with it. Now, this belongs to a very specific genre of history to conceptual history um, and is another way in which sort of the book blends different I mean, one would assume that intellectual history is just the history of ideas, but you blend these different tracts of intellectual history and social history and cultural history. And I can sort of see, knowing who your advisors in uh, grad school were, I can sort of see where the social history push was. Uh, So tell us more about the Islamic revival. What were the terms that were being used? How were people discussing it? Where were they discussing it? Was this coming sort of from the top down or from the bottom up? So so this this is a question that I came, it's a really good question. It's a question I came to because I couldn't figure out the answer to precisely what you just asked, which is to say, when was the term that is now dominant for the Islamic revival in, in Egypt, which is Asahbat Islamia, which is literally, more literally translated as the Islamic awakening? Uh, when was this, when did this come into usage in Arabic? Because the really striking thing about all the academic scholarship on this period is it doesn't really distinguish between the use of revival as an analytical term and its use as an internal term, uh, that, which is to say when Egyptians, in this case, understood themselves to be living in a time of revival. And this slippage isn't uh, 
random. It reflects a much longer tradition of how to study Islamic revival and Islamic history, which essentially assumes this to be a fairly well-designed playbook that whenever there's a perception that Muslims have turned away from Islam, a scholar or activist calls for a revival and seeks to lead people back to the to Islam's golden age, which was defined by the Quran and the Sunnah and the early Islamic community in Medina. Um, now, I find this to be a problematic approach, mostly because it's ahistorical. And Ahmed Dalal has done really good work in the pre-modern context of tackling this precise question. So for me, the challenge was therefore if I don't want to take these discourses of revival as essentially self-explanatory, then how do I trace them? What does it mean for there to be a revival? And so I go back into the 1930s, looking at both state-aligned and Islamist publications, and ask a very simple question. When do people start talking about a revival? And how do they talk about a revival? And really, if you go up through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there's no question that people understand this term, that these terms, whether sahwa or ba'ath or inba'ath or yakaza, all these terms that essentially denote a revival or an awakening or a tajdid, renewal. And these are terms that have a history within a longer Islamic diachronic tradition of renewal and reform. But what's so striking about this period, and this is really what I get into in the first chapter, is how the perception of whether an Islamic revival has happened or not in Egypt changes, and in turn, how this revival is defined in particular ways. And crucially to my argument, defined in particular ways as it relates to daily practice. So if you go back into the 1950s, you have someone such as Sayyid Qutb writing in the Muslim Brotherhood's magazine, saying essentially that Egyptian society is on the eve of, or on the precipice of a revival, that what is about to happen, that this is really impending. Uh, now, he writes this prior to the free officers, or excuse me, not prior to, in the early period of the free officers' rule, before the Brotherhood and Abdel Nasser have come to blows. and. So he's taking this view that there's about to be a revival. And indeed, you even have Salafis from Ansar Senna who trumpet Abdel Nasser's rule as evidence of a revival in Egypt. Uh, but ultimately, that's very much a minority view. There's some sense in the 1950s and 60s across the religious spectrum, but particularly among Muslim brothers and Salafis, that there's a revival that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and then post-67, there's a sense that there's absolutely not been a revival yet, but there needs to be. Because you know, in the case of the 1967 war, and this is, this is something written uh, in a book published by the Islamic Research Academy at Azhar, that there's the sense that the reason that Israel was victorious in the 67 war was, and here I'm just paraphrasing, the Jews have already had their revival. The Muslims have not, but the Jews have. And so here there's two points to be made. The first is that we have Muslim thinkers and activists 
in Egypt during this period, conceptualizing their ideological opponents in much the same way that they understand their own project. But the second point is that they don't believe themselves to yet be in a period of revival. And we start to see this dawning of a sense that Egypt is in a period of revival post-73, relating to the early advances, military advances of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. But still, this is a very vague sense of what revival means. There's no, de- there's no explanation of how Egyptian society has changed. Now, the reason why this change matters and why pinpointing particular change matters comes back to conceptual history. Because the history of concepts is interesting, not simply as an abstract matter, but because, to paraphrase Kosalik here, it creates conditions of possibility for a particular political projects. And the project here is the project of an Islamic revival that's premised on practice, on reorienting daily practice. It's the story of changing models of prayer, gender relations, Islamic education, and so forth. Now, ultimately, what's the only way that you can sell Egyptians on or one way you can sell Egyptians who are turning to religion on a more wholesale, broader-based turn is to say this is actually part of this broader category that has real cultural resonance. Because the notion that the assumption here is you're just going back to the past. This is a deeply authentic practice. And, of course, you are going back to the language of the past, To some extent, there is a continuity in the justifications for revival, but there's also a real shift in what revival means here. And the shift that I would identify here is that the project of revival is open-ended and oriented towards the future. The the traditional Islamic project revival differs. That's a project that, uh, to to, again paraphrase a famous Hadith report, that every 100 years a renewer, Mujaddid, will come. That this is the basis for understanding revival. It's essentially circular. That every 100 years, a mujaddid comes and revives the ummah, revives the Islamic community. The way in which revival is understood in the 1970s is much more open-ended, oriented towards the future. It's about the transnational Islamic community, the ummah, ceasing its destiny in the future. Based on an authentic connection to the past, driven by activism in the present, but ultimately this is a future project. Now, I emphasize the future-oriented nature of this project in addition to its practice focus because this is similar not to these long-standing discourses of revival and reform, but to nationalism, particularly to the secular nationalist context of Egypt during this period. And here, and this is where practice comes in again, because Ultimately, nationalism as a mass project is premised on orienting your citizens towards this national future by reorienting not only how they think of the world, but also how they live daily within it, creating self-regulating citizens that instead of you having to discipline them, largely discipline themselves. So ultimately, the story of the conceptual history of the Islamic revival ends up being one that is much more intimately tied to to the 20th century history of nationalism 
and the related emphasis of nationalism on daily practice than it is this longer Islamic tradition of revival and reform. I think the Egyptian state features heavily in the book. I mean, it's definitely not, you're not getting your primary sources from the National Archives, obviously. This is an intellectual history. That's a particularly thorny topic. I don't know if those sources are open to the public quite yet. Um, So how do you deal with the figure of the state? And particularly because this is during Sadat's period, he is um, Raiz al-Imam, sort of the believing president, so to speak. Um, What is your approach to sort of building a fig- the figure of the state within your narrative? So this is a great question of the state. And it's funny, one of the interesting things about reading a lot of work on Egypt, both political science and history before, is how the state I read about in history and political science work and the state that I experienced when I was living in Egypt were just so very different. Uh, that. When I think of a lot of the scholarship, uh, including a great deal of scholarship that's taught me a tremendous amount, the state is often a unitary actor. That it has different branches, but it's defined by a broad logic. And essentially, it's defined as carrying out a particular set of projects um, in, in a particular way. Now, there are exceptions to this. And here I'm thinking of Khaled Fahmi's work in particular, but also the work of Samir Shahata on shop floor culture. And that looks at the state as much more of a site of negotiation, of state institutions as sites of resistance, uh, as far less ideologically coherent than we might think. And this very much jives with my experience of the Egyptian state, particularly the bureaucratic building in Tahrir Square, the Mogama, uh, in which it seemed like there was always a deal to be negotiated, and all the more so if you actually really understand the system. And so I, so then the question was, well, how do I tell a story of the state in the 1970s without access to state institutions in an explicit sense? That I have magazines, but I don't have, I don't have personal papers or notes or journals or magazines produced by particular state bodies that I'm studying. Uh, now I have I have the Islamic Research Academy at, at Azhar. I have the Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs in Minbal Islam. But ultimately, I'm looking at what people are doing in bureaucratic offices and schools. And I, you know, there aren't sources for that. And so then the question was, okay, well, how do I understand these institutions? And one approach to understanding the state is essentially as a vertical body with very tight control from the top down. That now that isn't to say that. There isn't bureaucratic inertia. That isn't to say that there isn't uh, muddling of commands from top down, but essentially that this is a project really that is coherent and that speaks in, largely speaks in one voice. Now, I tend to think of the state in a very different way. It's a set of institutions, which while at times united by a particular logic, also have competing power centers that can undermine that logic and, of course, have just the daily give and take of bureaucratic institutions, of bosses and their workers, of teachers and their students, uh, of administrators, and particularly uh, for them troublesome students who are pushing them to do things that they might not want to do, 
we all know, if, we can all think of just in a very simple sense of the high school students who push their school administrators really hard to change what goes on in the school. And sometimes they're effective and sometimes they're not. But sometimes they also find a sympathetic ear with these teachers or with these administrators. I essentially think of state institutions that way. That I don't, I don't discount the way in which power is structured and enacted through the Egyptian state. I, you know, and to come back to this question of orthopraxy, I don't underplay the ways in which state institutions could shape religious practice and also religious thought in very significant ways. But ultimately, I don't see these projects as necessarily coherent. That, that coherence and that success needs to be proved rather than assumed. And as I looked at state institutions in the 1970s, I could see that these were really a key center of contestation for Muslim brothers and Salafis, that we think of them in, as living in this parallel religious universe, but they don't actually live in this parallel religious universe. Or more, put more precisely, they have spaces that are both distinctly brotherhood or Salafi, places that are more, one might say, ecumenically Islamic, where brothers, Salafis, and others come together, as is particularly the case of mosques. And then they have places where they're very much a minority, but no less committed to advancing particular projects of religious change. And I think that state institutions fall into that third category. When you hear the term intellectual history, you probably associate it with elites, elite ideas, ideas produced by intellectuals. In fact, that's how the field evolved. The elite ideas of European language intellectuals, mostly philosophy, those were the subjects of early intellectual history in the 19th and 20th centuries when the profession of history became, quote unquote, professionalized. In Islamic studies, even though Aaron identifies as a historian, it's safe to say he's an Islamic studies specialist, there was a preference for Islamic law and philosophy that arguably still persists in the field. However, what Aaron is trying to do implicitly is focus on ideas of people who might not identify as intellectuals, the ideas of greater society. But getting at those ideas is tricky. So, I mean, just as equally as difficult as oral history is working with print materials, especially uh, media. And this is something I run into in my work all the time is how do you draw the line between what is an individual's own opinion and to what extent is it rhetoric? I mean, to what extent, put differently, I suppose, to what extent is the reader shaping what is published as sort of it goes through this cycle of reader, um, author, reader, author, reader, author, something's published, and the reader consumes it, and then they offer feedback either through their purchasing power or through comments to the magazine. I mean, how do you sort of situate this relationship between the reader and the author or the publisher um, when you're reading a text and sort of trying to extract intellectual history from it? So this is a really important methodological question. And the first question is whether these... So I should start by saying that one of the core components of my methodological approach was to take letters to the editor and fatwa requests seriously as sources of both social and intellectual history. Uh, now, the first question when you deal with that kind of source is whether they're genuine, because we have 
a strong basis for thinking that many fatwa requests are essentially posed questions. In the case of Egypt in the 1970s, there's good reason to think that the questions were by and large not manufactured by the editors. And there's a very basic reason for that, a very self-interested reason for that. And the reason is that at the end of the day, Muslim brotherhoods and Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi elites in 1970s Egypt faced a basic challenge. They didn't have an infrastructure to shape a national project of religious change. Salafis still contained, controlled many of the mosques that they had controlled in the Abdul Nasser period here. In particular, I'm talking about Ansara Sindh al-Muhammadiyah, um, the Egypt's oldest and largest Salafi organization. But the Brotherhood, they were really in shambles. As one oral history interview I listened to explained, uh, this was from a student leader from the 1970s, he was asked, what role did the Brotherhood's Tanzim, its organization, play in your activities? And his response was, what Tanzim? There was no Tanzim. We had some books. That's it. Uh, and so as a result, I essentially looked at these sources not simply as a frivolous or light space within the magazine that allowed readers to sound off, but as actually a really central way that both Salafi Islamists, Islamists and quietist Salafis sought to mobilize dueling constituencies. And this, and this observation extends also to the Ministry of Endowments um, magazine, Minbar al-Islam, which is published by the Supreme Council for Islamic Affairs, that here so these sources matter not simply as a way to let readers give voice to their feelings, but as an essential mode of, of measuring the local reception of particular projects. And so here I came to these letters to the editor and Fatah requests with a very basic methodological uh, uh, intervention of reading the magazines essentially backwards. To, to start with the letters of the ed- to the editor and Fatah requests, to ask what's going on locally, and then to ask how it related to elite projects. Um, now, I, I didn't come to this randomly, which is to say I spent a great deal of time as a kid reading Sports Illustrated. And ultimately, the part of Sports Illustrated that I often found most interesting were the letters to the editor. They really give you a sense of the broader cultural and social landscape of sports in the United States. Now, of course, Sports Illustrated is relatively highbrow. It doesn't reflect all sports fans. But particularly in an era where we didn't have ESPN chat rooms. This is this is really, let alone before Twitter and so forth, this was really a place where people wrote in to express their opinions about what was going on in the sporting world. So I came to this from this perspective that actually letters to the editor are an important source of history. Um, and so here what I essentially did was to ask a very basic question of, okay, we have elite projects. We have letters to the editor and fatwa requests. What is the interplay between the two of these? And sometimes it's elite projects driving local activism, but sometimes it's also the reverse. And the intervention here is really to take seriously the role of local activism to drive elite projects, to shape those projects. And I should say here that I'm far from the first person to draw on the Muslim Brotherhood's magazine, the Dawah. 
I'm, my work is more novel in drawing on the other periodicals. But there, I think by my last count, there are probably six books that have some discussion of uh, issues of Odawa from this period. I'm the first person to make any reference to letters to the editor and thought to request, let alone to really take them seriously as sources. Uh, and I think that that approach has merit not merely for students of Islamic intellectual and social history, but also generally for non-Islamic magazines and journals. Because ultimately, with all the caveats that are necessary to make about the fact that the letters that appear are ultimately appear at the under the authority of the editors and writers, nonetheless, these sources, when read critically, do provide us with a way of telling social and intellectual history for which we otherwise don't have sources. So for the subjects of your study, a large, major aspect of the Islamic revival or experiencing the Islamic revival was different aspects of practice, orthopraxy, so to speak. So um, growing beards, praying on time for women wearing a veil. How does belief and practice, how are these concepts conceptualized by your subjects? Ultimately, the question of how people conceptualize their own practice and how those practices emerge are distinct. They're often conflated, but they're distinct. I think that I don't think that the people involved saw themselves as doing anything but going back to past models. I really, I think, as a mass matter, I really don't think that people were saying, oh, there's anything novel about what we're doing. Now, on an elite level, the question is a little more complicated. And here, one of the things I struggled with in the book was how, how much to look at these projects of daily practice as self-conscious and intentional, and how much to see them as unconscious and, un- and in, on some level unintentional, yet no less discontinuous from the past for being unintentional. Um, and so I'll give you the example of this question of daily prayer, particularly the performance of the Vohar prayer. Now, one of the arguments of the book is that a key rupture in Egypt in the 1970s is the popularization of the early afternoon daily prayer. Uh, now, many people might listen to this and say, well, Muslims have been praying the Vohar prayer, the early afternoon prayer, for hundreds of years. How is this novel in any shape or form? And certainly that's true. What's interesting about the story is not that suddenly people start praying the Vohar, but rather that they start praying the Vohar in radically different circumstances. Because if we think of temporality and the, the structure of one's day, there's a way in which political power structures how one's schedule is set up. And here, the most obvious example are schools and government institutions. And Egypt saw a massive expansion in both educational and bureaucratic institutions from the late 19th century on. Now, where this the question gets complicated is, okay, you're supposed to perform the Vohar prayer in essentially a several-hour period. There's, there are some who argue, legally speaking, that it's praiseworthy to perform it at the very beginning, but one can legitimately perform this prayer 
within this broader time period. So we see two really interesting things happen in 1970s Egypt. One is that suddenly it becomes really important to Muslim brothers and elites within the Salafi Islamist Jamia Sharia to perform the prayer immediately upon the call to prayer. Not within the time period, but immediately. And again, there's not, it's not that there isn't an emphasis on this being a praiseworthy practice, but this is a praiseworthy practice that is popularized in a very particular historical moment, which is a moment when Muslim brothers and Salafis don't have access to, don't have a broad infrastructure themselves. When, they're, when the members of these groups, both youth and older people who are government employees, are going into these state-structured institutions on a daily basis where there is not time set aside for Zvahar prayer. And thus, there's a need to essentially find a way to hatch a project within these state institutions that will help to advance a Muslim Brotherhood or Salafi project here without actual control of the institutions, and to do so in a way that is both culturally authentic, yet also hard to deny for state bureaucrats. And because ultimately you don't, if you're a bureaucrat, it's problematic to be the person saying, no, you can't pray in school. Particularly in a time when the president, Anwar Sadat, emphasizes that, emphasizes that he's the believing president at a time when he describes his state's legitimacy, basis of legitimacy as one of being a state of science and faith. Uh, so here we have, on the one hand, a, pro- a project that's long-standing, but on the other hand, two key ruptures. Beyond the, the very decision to pray it within state institutions, one is an emphasis on on prompt performance has a lot more to do with modernist projects of timeliness and state order than it does with this longer Islamic tradition. And the second is that these groups not only petitioned for to be able to pray immediately when the call to prayer sounded, but they also petitioned to be able to do collectively, which in the Egyptian context, the time when one is expected to pray collectively is Friday prayer, not daily prayer, let alone the Dhuhr prayer. And so, and when they prayed collectively, they emphasized that these collective prayers needed to be highly orchestrated and organized, that there was essentially that people were supposed to discipline themselves standing in particular places, in rows, etc. Now again, these aren't, it's not that they're doing something that has no basis within a longer Islamic tradition, but they're utilizing this Islamic tradition to, for, to form a project in the present that challenges the temporal and spatial organization of state institutions. Uh, and in doing so, they arguably have as much in common, if not more in common, with modernist projects of timeliness and order than they do with this longer Islamic tradition of daily prayer. Salafism studies has always been a priority of the Western Academy, and especially in the years since 9-11, the field has seen a flood of works on the subject. But I worry that as more studies on Salafism proliferate, and many of them are excellent, and some of them are needed, that this will begin to narrow our vision in terms of what Islam actually is. 
So I'm going to pull out the guns right now. And yeah, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I would say that Salafism in the study of 20th century Islam is perhaps overrepresented in the historiography or secondary literature. What say you? Uh, so what, the first thing I would say is I was having a conversation with someone about a year ago, and they said that the Muslim Brotherhood, there was still a lot of work to be done in the Muslim Brotherhood. And I was skeptical of this argument. Um, but I understand that concern with Salafism, because we do have a lot of scholarship on Salafism. We have scholarship on longer traditions of Salafi theology. We have scholarship, political science scholarship, and some historical scholarship on contemporary Salafi movements, on leading Salafi figures today. And I think that scholarship is both very valuable, but also has key limitations. And this is why I think that the Salafism is perhaps overrepresented in many respects, but also has significant room to grow. And I think it has room to grow because in a way that is very much conversant with larger conversations in Middle East history. Because ultimately, I think my basic critique of the existing scholarship, which again, I think adds a lot to how we understand Salafism, is that it's very elite-centered. It focuses on questions of theology and on political participation. Now, an exception to this are anthropologists who really focus on Salafi practice. And I think that in terms of understanding Salafi movements, this is a really fruitful approach. Uh, ultimately, we don't have a real engagement with Salafism as a historical project that takes it seriously as a story of practice of, and takes it seriously as a story of 20th, a 20th century religious movement. And so here, this is where I think that Salafism, and maybe I'm dodging your question here as to whether it's overrepresented or underrepresented, but here I think it's actually, instead of seeing it as a question of a Salafi niche, I think it's, it's very much a story that's in conversation with other social movements in the Middle East and beyond during this period. So I think that we need to, just as Beth Barron so, so fascinatingly did in her work uh, on early 20th century Egypt um, and the Muslim Brotherhood and Christian missionary activism, essentially and very persuasively arguing that we can't understand the Brotherhood without understanding Christian missionary activity in early 20th century Egypt. I think the same argument goes for understanding Salafis, not simply to say that Salafis too are shaped by missionaries, though for the first half of the 20th century, that's absolutely true. But also to ask, well, how is Salafism as a movement shaped by forces that normatively speaking very much fall outside the ideal of deriving Islamic law from the Quran and Sunnah? So how is it shaped by modern nationalism? How is it shaped by fashion? How is it shaped by... Not by other Islamic movements or secularist thinkers who Salafis otherwise detest. And, I, and what are the sources we can use to tell this story that doesn't simply end up in essentially a circular narrative where Salafis are what they say they do? Because I do think that's a really important starting point, but that can only be a starting point. 
for how we understand Salafis. And so I think here, as a matter of both intellectual and social history, the way that we can make Salafism a part of that larger conversation of Middle East history, both methodologically and in terms of sources, is to ask how Salafis are themselves not merely drivers, but also products of changes in the 20th century. Uh, and here I'll cite one of my favorite books, or my favorite works, uh, that have nothing to do with Salafism, but I very much illustrate this parallel. There's a 1994 article in um, a Jewish studies journal titled Rupture and Reconstruction. And it's by um, Joseph, excuse me, Chaim Soloveitchik is the son of Joseph Soloveitchik, who is one of the towering figures of modern Jewish orthodoxy in 20th century United States. Uh, and essentially, Soloveitchik, the younger Soloveitchik, writes this article. He's an academic. He writes this article from the perspective of someone who very much grew up in at the center of modern orthodoxy. And he writes it to, to, in discussing not only the changes that happened to his own community, but actually, conceptually speaking, focused on the ultra-orthodox, essentially those who uh, are even less open to modernist conceptions of change um, and thought than modern orthodoxy, which itself is very much a product of the modern period, um, which seeks to claim authenticity through its connection to the past, but is ultimately self-consciously inconceivable in anything other than the modern period. And so he asks this question of, well, how has Jewish practice for, the orth for modern and ultra-Orthodoxy changed in the 20th century? Because he can describe practice in modern Orthodoxy during this period. He can describe what people in his father's synagogue did. These are the people he grew up with. And then he can describe what the expectations of modern and ultra-Orthodoxy are today. And what's so striking here, to make a, a very long story short, I think the article itself is 60-some pages, is that he notes there's a real shift in practice. It's a shift towards precise practice, a shift towards making sure that every aspect of ritual is very minutely measured. Now, this reminds one of Salafis more than anything else. This idea of a focus on practice that is based on really deep precision. And the question then is, where does this come from? And one answer that ties these two groups together is this comes from the dominance of discourses and practices of modern science. That this is fundamentally a story of modern science, and it, the growing dominance of modern science as a language of legitimacy, consciously or unconsciously. And here, this is one way of understanding how Salafis work that in ways that reflect broader historical global shifts of the dominance of modern science, that religious practice is conceptualized in terms of a basic set of yardsticks, only one of which is its fidelity to what people used to do. Another is the extent to which it's defensible in terms of modern science and the associated idea of precision as a basis of legitimacy within modern science. Aaron and I are about to talk about Sufism, or Tasawwuf, the mystical branch of Islam. 
It's one of those things that I feel is difficult to describe, but that I know it when I see it, which isn't very helpful to you at all. So there's this tendency to paint Sufism as unintellectual, as mystical, as illogical, regressive, but it's a very influential aspect of Islam, and it can really influence most of Muslim life. So we're talking about um, aspects of Muslim life from Islamic law to chronic exegesis, from the way that everyday Muslims worship and conduct their interactions with one another. However, historical studies of Sufism, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries, can be thin. Another issue is that Sufism can also be presented as sort of the counterpoint to Salafism and the Brotherhood, but even that's not entirely accurate. So I put some of these concerns to Aaron. I also want you to note that if you're interested in finding out more about Sufism, I tend to bring it up a lot, and I've done a couple of interviews with people that concern Sufism, uh, in particular Alexander Knish. Also, my colleague Christian Peterson did a wonderful interview with Omid Safi, who recently translated a selection of Sufi texts that might be of interest. So check that out. It's a great interview. Omid and Christian are just wonderful. One of the reasons why I asked that question in particular, um, and I, I, I think your points on secularization theory are very well taken um, indirectly and sort of how this all fits together. And of course, the global nature of religious change is that I worry that the focus on Salafism both sort of um, shields our vision to other trends in modern Islam or contemporary Islam or um, 20th century Islam, but also um, it shields our vision and thus, I mean, as the field becomes more and more crowded with very excellent studies on Salafism, I have to say. I mean, Salafism and, and Wahhabism, um, there's there's just been very rigorous intellectual work that is respectful to the fact that these ideas have their own internal logic. But my fear is that as the field is crowded with more and more works on Salafism, that we neglect other major trends in modern Islam. Um, one of them, of course, being Sufism and sort of how different tariqas develop, even on a trans-regional, global level, um, as is sort of the nature of many studies of the 20th century. Um, but also, and I think this is sort of one of the more interesting cases, where Sufism in particular intersects with um, Islamism and Salafism by default. And then also, of course, I think something else that just sort of comes to mind is we tend to we tend to locate trends in modern Islam either in pre-existent, what we consider sort of more traditional strains of Islamic thinking, so Sufism being one of those, um, or the approach to the modern nation state, because that's, I mean, it's in the word, it's in the sort of term modern nation state as a compact phrase, there's the assumption that modernity comes with the advent of the um, modern nation state. And I, I just, I can't help but think that there's more that we're not quite picking up on. And what I am encouraged by is the fact that in the field of Islamic studies right now, um, and you vaguely reference this several times, but I don't think you're uh, referencing these exact studies, is there's an attempt um, by historians, by ethicists, by anthropologists to take different aspects of Islamic practice more seriously. And in particular, one of my favorites is Rena Lewis's book, Muslim Fashion, which 
I mean, she's a historian. She's worked on these issues of fashion in the Ottoman context, but then she takes seriously how Muslims themselves are dealing with this idea of modesty conceptually, not simply what they're wearing, but how they're negotiating that space. Yeah. So this is, this is a really important question. This is one that I think about um, because I ultimately what we study is in some respect, a reflection of what we're fascinated by and there are any number, you know, I could tell a story of why I became fascinated with Islamism or Salafism, but ultimately there's something that's utterly contingent about it, that had I not gone on study abroad in Egypt, had I not gotten, gotten into Amr Khaled, I probably would have not gone down those lines. Oh, of course, Salafis can't stand Amr Khaled. Um, I do think that there is a real issue here. Uh, and I think it's an issue you point out of how do we tell a story of a story that doesn't understate both the diversity of thought in modern Islam, the diversity of movements in modern Islam, uh, while at the same time taking really seriously groups that, for reasons of politics and security studies, tend to be overcovered. Um, now, because there's one argument to that, that that my kind of my scholarship on Muslim brothers or Salafis that it reinforces this notion that Egyptian Muslims or Muslims generally are exceptional. Now, and I think there is a lot of scholarship on these groups, uh, particularly in the policy world, that does precisely that. And I think it's really problematic, uh, and often it's totally unconscious. Uh, but I do think that there's still a place for, for methodologically serious and conceptually sophisticated work on these groups that really takes seriously not merely their connection to Islamic history, but also their connection to the 20th century and tries to essentially argue that we need to understand how they work, not through reference to the 7th century the golden model of the first Muslim Islamic state under the Prophet Muhammad, but rather with reference to the 20th century. Now, that only partially solves response to your question, because the question is also, people read this instead of books on Sufism, instead of books on Islamic modernism, and what, what are the implications of that? Uh, you know, is there a danger of contributing to a particular a particular trend um, more broadly culturally of seeing Muslims as uniquely committed to politics um, or to religious politics specifically and you know, I, I take I take that concern seriously and I certainly wouldn't argue there should be less work on Islamic modernism or Sufism uh, I think one of the, my argument ultimately remains though, that the reason we need to understand these groups is that notwithstanding the fact that in the academic scholarship, there can often be an overemphasis on Islamism and on Salafism. We need, these are among the two most fast growing movements in Muslim majority countries today. These are movements that in the case of Salafism, that have a real foothold in both the, in, 
in both the United States and Western Europe. And I say foothold, not in the sense of sort of Islamophobic scare language, but as being socially influential actors, actors that shape the, the societies around them, and therefore actors that we need to understand in an intellectually serious fashion. And that if we that if we don't do so, if we essentially say these groups have, are backwards, they've been studied too much, they're not progressive. We should study progressives more because progressives, progressive Muslim thought will help to shift a cultural balance both within Muslim communities and in non-Muslim communities alike, that I think that then we actually make the, take the risk of making these groups exceptional, of committing that sin of making Muslims exceptional. Here, a very specific group of Muslims are making Islam exceptional. And what we really need to be doing is doing serious scholarship that takes all of these groups seriously, both on their own terms and also as part of larger global stories of religious change. And that the result of that may be to puncture narr- narratives of authenticity by each. And ultimately, my concern as a scholar isn't whether I uphold or I puncture a narrative of, of authenticity. It's simply not my concern. But I think ultimately, we need to understand even claims to authenticity as strategies that varied religious movements today use that as a historical matter are ahistorical, but actually are really important to understand the world in which they emerge. So what you're about to hear is what Aaron said when I asked him about his origin story, how he became a historian and how he came to this project in particular. So a bit of a side note, um, I was at Aaron's dissertation defense and he disclosed many of these same details at the defense. It just gives you a sense of his personality and like what details he thinks are relevant to his research and what experiences he brings to his own research. Begin by saying that I spent many hours reading Sports Illustrated on the couch having a snack. And uh, so I was very gratified when I got, when I went to Surah Azbakia, the Azbakia market in Cairo, I came home with this massive stack of issues of Adawa. And I was looking through them. I was so excited to see the articles, to look what they had inside, because this was my really my first look at an extended run of these magazines. And I'm opening up one of the first issues I open up, and it wouldn't be the only issue of this sort, had a bunch of sunflower seeds that were stuck inside. So, you know, I wasn't the only person who was snacking while, while reading magazines. Um, but ultimately, something, I was asked this question at a, confer- a Salafism conference recently. How did I end up studying Salafism? And ultimately, the story of how I ended up studying Salafism, the story of how I ended up studying these magazines and it are not so different, which is to say that I went to Egypt as a study abroad student. I was fascinated with the Egyptian state, with Egyptian society. I think like many undergrads, I was tempted initially by political science before moving towards history. Uh, and I looked around and I was fascinated by the social forces that shaped Egyptian society. I wanted to understand how people act as they act, why they act in the way they act, what what drives basic human behavior. Um, And so one of the things I did when I was on study abroad was I went to a lecture 
by uh, an Egyptian Muslim televangelist named Amr Khaled. Uh, and this, this ended up actually being the topic of an article that I wrote uh, on Amr Khaled's rise and use of transnational media. And what I found fascinating about Khaled was very simply the fact that I found him to be not particularly charismatic to, he had, he was certainly, one might say, unconventionally handsome. Uh, he didn't have, he had a relatively high pitched voice, all of these markers that in an American context wouldn't seem to foretell a really powerful and successful religious career. But what was so striking about watching Amr Khaled was the reaction he arrived among AUC students, both male and female, but particularly female. And so at that point, my question was, okay, this is something I don't understand at all. All of my preconceptions about who should be charismatic have clearly been proved utterly wrong. So why are figures like this powerful socially? Where do they come from? How do they claim authority? And what does this teach us about Egypt today? You know, just as importantly, what does it not teach us? And so that ultimately led me into understanding the 1970s, wanting to understand the 1970s, because Amr Khaled and the broader movement of which he's part, which is known as the New Preachers of Dua Gudud, they're ultimately but one manifestation of this, <clears throat> of this longer shift of the rise of the Islamic revival. And so... That led me to the 70s. And then the question was, well, how do I tell a history of the 70s? What are the sources at my disposal? And oral history was one option, but it was a risky option, particularly prior to the Arab Spring. It, it wasn't a viable option prior to the Arab Spring. Perhaps one could think of it as a viable option for about a year post-Arab Spring. But I looked at magazines from this period. I thought of Sports Illustrated, and I said, wait a second. There might be something here. And so I mean, I essentially wagered the dissertation on this basic methodological view that letters to the editor and fatwa request had something really interesting to teach me about religious history. Uh, and I went from there and ended up uh, you know, picking as much meat off the bone of these magazines as I possibly could. Now, I'm, I'm happy to say that that was a really fun experience. It, was, it made the dissertation, in many respects, much more manageable. It had limitations as well, in the sense that ultimately I was limited to what was debated in these magazines. I, and this was also a limitation of sources. It wasn't that there were sources I didn't use. It was simply a function of the sources. Uh, but there are other ways one could have done this project as a project of oral history. But And I think that ultimately those stories would have been complementary. But what these sources, because what I realized was that these sources because of how central they were to the organizations in question, to the institutions in question, actually allowed me to tell a very detailed and nuanced history of the rise of the Islamic revival. The last thing Aaron and I are going to discuss is how he writes. As a society, I think we're a bit obsessed with routines and habits. I mean, we have blogs like Lifehacker and My Morning Routine. And in the academy itself, there's this whole industry around discussing how people write from books to offhanded comments that people make that all of a sudden become sort of pillars of conversation. So for example, there was this one comment made like 15 years ago, people are still citing it. Um, an academic said that he writes 5,000 words a day. And of course the field 
the humanity fields, I guess, were split on the issue. Some saying that, A, that's just how some people write. B, that that's a horribly unhealthy attitude towards getting work done. The, the first way to answer this would be to say, what do I do as I read? And I take notes, essentially, on what my what the basic contours of my argument could be. Uh, but they're very limited notes. I'll write out a few sentences at a time. They're not in any particular order. They're just essentially me trying to keep track of my ideas. And then what I do is I bring all those together at the beginning of a chapter. And I just have them at the beginning of the chapter. And then I start going through all my sources again. I have written notes. I go through all the sources. Um, and I start to essentially tag things as potentially relating to different themes. And so once I've done that, I say, okay, I think I see a basic structure for this. Here are four sections. Um, and so I create four very broad sections, which, you know, in the case of my book, might be summarized as the history of a practice, the early popularization of a practice, and the consolidation of a practice. Uh, and then I essentially look at every primary source I have on this, and I stick it in a Word document, often with block quotations. And I then will write sentences in italics above these block quotations as to what these things might say. And so this, this process, after I've finished reading all the sources, and I sit down, I take about a week, maybe 10 days, to create what is usually 20 to 25 pages single space of outline and sources. Uh, it's a totally unwieldy document. It's not something that I could ever expect anyone else to look at and say, oh, that's where he's going with this. But then what I do is I whittle it down. And so 20, 25 pages becomes half of that. And the block quotations become points of particular arguments. And the sections have more and more distinct identities. And I figure out what I'm missing also, and so I bring in stuff that I'm missing. And so at, at the end of this essentially 10-day period, I have what is essentially a very detailed 10 to 15 pages single space, if not 20 pages. And then I just sit down and I write like crazy. I write for probably, usually... I'll write between five and 8,000 words a day and just punch it out. I have a draft, but I think the important thing to say is I don't care about my language. And sometimes my prose is clear and concise. Other times it's not there yet. I just want to figure out a way to structure my ideas and the language will come later. And it's about, this is how I figure out my argument. I don't, I find it really difficult to think abstractly about the various nuances of an argument without putting um, pen to paper, metaphorically speaking, and really putting together a detailed outline and then whittling down that outline. And it's really through that final process where I'm writing a lot that I figure out the broad, base, the basic contours of the argument. Um, I will say one last thing, which I find really helpful, is I will actually spend a bunch of time thinking about how the existing secondary literature explains what I'm doing. And that is useful not only because it's important to credit people who have done work prior to your work, uh, that I think that often people are less generous than they might be with crediting the work of others. Um, and that credit can also go with serious critique, 
but often that credit goes unspoken. But then that also really helps me clarify what my argument is and figure out how I want to structure the interventions of the chapter. So here, in some respects, I write chapters a little bit like articles, uh, which I have to guard against when I'm writing a book. Uh, but it helps me figure it out exactly how I fit into an existing conversation, how I might make an argument that makes a contribution to that conversation.